This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight I'm taking you to the All Energy Conference at Jeff's Shed. I went there and I was a bit uh, overawed really by all the men in suits and by all the industry that was represented there. This was the renewable energy industry on show. The barn-like showroom had tons of little uh, display rooms with companies called things like ABB Australia or HW Technology. There were more exotic ones like Shenzhen Yibo Electronics and my favourite one, the Global Insulator Group. So I went around there. I couldn't really make my head or tail of all these different things. A lot of solar, uh, if you have solar panels on your roof, you can get storage options, but also large-scale storage. That's the new thing coming along. And so I thought I'd report on that, but I interviewed a couple of people, but not too many. Mainly what I'm going to uh, report to you is from the conference, which is the industry talking to itself. The first person I talked to was a power storage expert from California. He wasn't into little storage units that you could put in the garage, but utility scale. His name was Craig Horn. Just say your name. Okay. Uh, Craig Horn, H-O-R-N-E. Um, so I'm Craig Horn. I'm with the Res Group. Uh, we have offices here in Sydney as well as around the world. Um, I'm also, I've been in the energy storage industry for over 20 years, and currently I'm Secretary of the Energy Stor- Storage Association in the United States. Uh, so uh, this year uh, there was an emerging crisis in Southern California um, with uh, uh, around uh, the gas supply. So the Aliso Canyon, one of the largest uh, gas storage facilities uh, in California, uh, had a leak. And the consequence was is it could only run at uh, about uh, 12% of capacity. Uh, so that greatly restrains the fuel supply in the area. Um, one of the ways to uh, help manage the, the power supply going forward in the face of this is an emergency procurement of energy storage facilities by the utilities down in Southern California. Uh, so that was our Southern California Edison, LA uh, Department of Water and 
Power and San Diego Gas and Electric are the, the major ones. Could you spell out for the listeners what that storage is? I gather it's large-scale storage, what it would look like. Yeah, so these, uh, what was uh, approved by the Public California Public Utility Commission was procurements for those utilities to uh, engage industry in procuring energy storage systems uh, on the order of 2 megawatts to 20 megawatts in scale, and they need to have duration of four hours to count as local capacity, uh, you know, to provide the surety for the grid that they can operate uh, you know, for that amount of time. Um, uh, those uh, contracts uh, or those bids were put out, uh, uh, companies were selected, and contracts were signed by the end of August, and uh, those systems will be in the ground anywhere from December 31st of this year to January 31st of 2017. So that means within six to seven months, we're seeing almost half a gigawatt hour of new large-scale storage facilities to be in the network in Southern California. Also, just uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, um, a law has been in California for to allow the utilities to procure up to 500 megawatts of four-hour storage in 2017 to uh, provide peaking capacity for California as well. So with these developments, we're seeing that the energy storage industry can provide systems you know, very quickly at a very large scale, and also we're seeing these prices come down, and, and these prices for these four-hour storage systems are now competitive on a dollar-per-kilowatt basis or power capacity basis with gas peaking plants. I think people are suddenly rather interested in this since you've had uh, Cyclone Sandy, Hurricane Katrina. We now just had one in Adelaide, and suddenly we have a blackout. We're not used to it in poorer countries. They have blackouts all the time, but we're not used to it. And suddenly we think, oh, my gosh, the hospital, the train, the lifts in the building, you know, they're not working. So this is starting to be a very interesting subject. Is this becoming more obvious in America? Yes, yes. And I think, you know, the energy storage industry has been scaling for a number of years now. Um, You know, in America, it's been an emerging industry. Um, There's been a lot of uh, um, uh, evolution of policy and regulations to account for the fact that storage technology is now available and effective from both the performance and cost standpoint. And so now we're seeing that the industry can respond to these types of things. And I think if you did have storage distributed, not only residential storage, but you know centralized storage, 10, 20, even 100 megawatt multi-hour storage systems throughout the grid in South Australia, um, the 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 in, you know the issues that we're seeing last week would have been um, uh, much much less severe. I mean, you always have to worry about you know storms coming through and knocking down distribution lines, certain transmission lines. But with storage distributed through your network, you can have a much much more resilient systems. And I think you know there's been studies around the world that have shown that, and you know that has that kind of impact in virtually any network that there is. Just forgive me for my ignorance, but I only know about um, those solar arrays with concentrated solar thermal power stored in salt, mm-hmm. molten salt. I've right. sort of read up about that. That's the one I know about. Mm-hmm. But what other method? What are the methods of storage? Okay. Well, um, you basically, you know, there's. Uh, I mean, you have storage in, 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 in different classes. You have battery storage, which is an electrochemical uh, type of storage. You can have pure chemical storage, where there's reactants going on. That, that's that's not that common. Mechanical storage, pumped hydro, is a form of mechanical storage that is actually the most prevalent storage today. Uh, those are typically large facilities that take years to build. Um, but there's also compressed air energy storage, and those can be done on a large scale, and there's companies developing smaller scale. Flywheels are another example of mechanical storage. Um, so there's many different types of storage, and, and of course, uh, solar thermal storage, like you mentioned, is one as well. Now, that's coupled with generation. The type of storage that we're seeing in the U.S., most widely deployed in battery storage, that can be coupled with generation at the solar site or wind site, but it also can be decoupled and be ind- 
independent nodes, the standalone systems there on the network. And that's what we're seeing a prevalent of uh, deployments in the United States today. Hundreds of megawatts over the last you know year or two. Uh, my company, Res Group, we installed uh, one-third of the megawatts in the United States in 2015. Uh, we're recognized as, I guess, uh, you know, number two on the leaderboard by Navigate Consulting. But we've done several 20-megawatt power plant facilities in the United States. It's very nice to hear about it. And I think it was quite exciting to hear about it at this conference. Could you just say your name and your company again so we just can remember? Great, yes. Uh, my name is Craig Horn, and I'm with Res Group. the utility scale storage which as you may realize in the recent blackout in uh, South Australia would have been good to have had some storage wouldn't it on the grid some of that utility scale storage as we heard in California they're rolling it out quite a lot now we're going to talk to Daniel Laws I must admit I was really glad to see someone I knew in this massive crowd of people and uh, he came up to me and I had interviewed him last year about his energy diverter and he's now launching it in Australia and you can buy it. It's somehow a system whereby you can store energy that you've got from your solar panels on the roof in your hot water tank. The uh, power diverter stall at the conference, and I've met Daniel Laws, who listeners you may remember. We met him last year, I think, and he was from England, and he just pioneered a sort of new type of power diverter to fit in with your hot water tank. And I don't really remember the details, but he's going to take us through it now. And it's just two weeks ago they've launched in Australia, so you can actually buy this product. It's called Power Diverter, and um, I'm not—I don't have shares in this company, but I think you should, you know, look up because it's really quite exciting and very simple to understand. So Daniel, welcome and tell us again about your product. Okay, uh, hello and uh, so Power Diverter is a a smart device that monitors um, power uh, that's trying to export your property because there's there's always a lot of um, uh, excess power available from solar PV systems uh, which just goes back to the grid and um, what people are finding that they go out during the day and, and they, when they come back home at night, the sun's gone down. They're buying that power full price. So, power diverter captures that excess power and automatically diverts it into your hot water heater uh, via its heating element and stores it as a thermal mass, and you get hot water every day. So, the heater, your, your water heater, is a battery. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's thinking about battery storage, but most people have actually got a battery in their home, and it's called the water, hot water tank. Yeah. Could you take us over to the unit and just tell us what it looks like and what each part of it is? Okay, so. Um, it's a, it's a small unit that um, you, you locate close to your electric electrical cupboards, and the, the, the system uh, simply connects in line with your existing power cable that uh, powers your heating element within your hot water tank. Um, the system takes about 20 minutes to install. There's no plumbing required or anything like that, so it's non-invasive. Um, so most customers like it because it's a very nice, easy fit. It's a very low low cost option. Um, you'd be uh, it's fully installed. It's around about $1,200. 
less in that order, some doing a little bit more or less, or you know, 1200 is pretty much where it sits. And your payback is typically between 1.9 and three and a half years, something like that. That's um, that's through through the case studies that we've got so far. So it's a pretty quick uh, payback, and you know, once you've got your payback, you, it's there forever. This should last the life for the system because uh, the build quality. We've sold several thousand of these back home, and then we redeveloped it for Australia. But we've obviously thought about your climate and everything else, and upgraded everything. So it's there. For life really. Also people who have a solar system on their roof and a hot water tank, could it be electric or gas? Okay, so um, the uh, the first unit that we're, um, we were just talking about, that's for people with a hot water tank. But for people with um, gas, instant gas units, they don't have a storage facility uh, to store hot water. So, uh, in our, uh, uh, which we're, uh, we've launched today, uh, or yesterday actually, from yesterday, uh, we've got our SunAmp unit, powder to SunAmp, which is um, a really smart heat battery. And you can store five kilowatts of energy in here, um, a total of four hot water. Now, the battery isn't like a lithium iron phosphate battery or a saltwater battery like the others. This is made from phase change material. It's like a gel. And you can store energy in there. Um, and so what we do is we connect our power diverter into our sun amp. Um, and it, you can vary that power because obviously solar energy is variable. And you can store your energy five kilowatts. And it goes... You run it in line with your gas unit, and uh, what happens is when you turn your tap on, uh, it shocks the gel, and you get instant hot water, 60 degrees, and that way, um, you, you know, you're utilising the store storage facility. If you do, it, the, the five kilowatts is equal to around uh, 120, uh, 120 litres of, um, of, of water at 60 degrees Celsius, and so that would do plenty all your showers and everything in the morning because you usually only it's like 40 degrees or whatever so you mix it with your cold you get loads of hot water out of this but in the case that you need to top it up because it's already in line with your instant gas unit you've got the security of the gas there as well so but this should dramatically decrease the uh, amount of gas you use All right. thank you very much I think it was very innovative when I saw it first and I'm very pleased that you've been able to get the business up and going in Australia yeah. is it available anywhere in Australia like Melbourne we're in Melbourne but is it available in other cities uh, yes, yeah, so it's available all over Australia. We go through wholesales, so um, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention names, yes, but um, uh, Rexel, um, Energy Solutions, um, Supply Partners, Heyman's, C&W, those kind of people, uh, businesses, they're, they're all s- uh, selling the products. Right. So if listeners are interested, they can just look up your website. What is it? It's powerdiverter.com.au. Fantastic. So that was Daniel Laws. Thank you. Now let's go into the conference hall where Alison Crook, AO, is giving a keynote address about community energy. She's the CEO of Ennova and they have community energy up near Byron Bay. They decided to make a community energy hub and it's very successful and it could be replicated and taken to, to scale in other parts of Australia. And it's important to realise that we were set up from the outset as a social enterprise. Uh, with twin objectives to assist the community to reduce carbon emissions and to benefit the community. And I guess you haven't heard of too many retailers with objectives like that. Um, so, but when I say community, in the Constitution we're referring to the, um, specifically to the North Rivers region as a community, which are the seven shires that run from the Tweed to the, um, to the Clarence. But as I'll demonstrate, 
our aim is to assist communities that want to increase renewable energy generation and use wherever they're based in Australia. And so we're really talking about communities of interest. Give you a bit of background, we came into being as a result of community frustration over the lack of government leadership on climate change. And in opposition to government support for community for, for coal seam gas in a region of outstanding natural beauty, reliant on agriculture and tourism. We call it the Bentley effect. And we really demonstrated at Bentley what could be done because we forced the government to uh, pay off the coal seam gas licenses and we call them. So there was a strong demand to demonstrate what could be achieved with renewables, but a gap in the market. The big companies didn't want to or need to work with small players. So a community retailer was required to purchase and sell back community generated energy. There was a lot of discussion about this at North Coast Energy Forums over a number of years. This eventually merged into the Sustainability Offices, the Total Environment Centre and New South Wales Office of Environment and Heritage, getting together to provide a small grant and call for tenders for a feasibility study to see if a community retailer was viable. So four of us submitted, won the tender and got on with it between September 14 and February 15. And we demonstrated that it was feasible. So after that, the sheer hard grind started. Uh, we developed and tested the business plan, we submitted a retail license to the AER, and we developed prospectus and launched it with ASIC. And then from late August to December came the, the uh, nail-biting, as well as the hard grind, exercise of capital raising. We had no idea what response to expect. Um, initially, we thought the ethical investment fund would probably step up for about half of what we needed. And we said our minimum target was three million, uh, what we would like was four million. But there was no interest from the investment funds. We were too small, and uh, as a startup, we were inherently risky. And of course, the returns were not quite as high as ethical investment funds expected, which seemed to be in the vicinity of 20%. Uh, and we were also too small and risky for the CEFC, even though they were interested in the model. So, inherently the story is very much one of community. Essentially, a community of interested in individuals came all the way. We held 30 plus events in the region and in Sydney, Brisbane and Newcastle. And uh, at times we thought we wouldn't make it, but people kept coming up to us saying we must make this happen. They'd ring us up and say we must make this happen, what can we do? And there was a surge of interest in December at the last moment as there became a tipping point in local awareness. For those of you who are interested in starting anything at the community level, there's always that tipping point as you build and then finally get there. Uh, so we, we finally wound up in uh, December with 1,100 investors and 75% from the region. We're very pleased to see that that remaining 25% came from every other state and territory in Australia because there was strong interest in the model and what could be done. So this year, we've um, we put the funds, and we're fully subscribed now at 4 million. Um, and we've recruited and trained the staff, we've developed and tested the systems, and we've started taking customers from June 1st. 
and we're now ahead of the target and closing on 900 customers as we speak. So turning to our uh, business structure, we have a public unlisted holding company limited by sheets, and that's the social enterprise. There are two subsidiaries, firstly the retail and solutions uh, advisory company, and we see ourselves very much as a solutions provider, not only a retail company. So we're interested in assisting people who are both individuals and communities who are interested in uh, going in developing renewable energy. And then there's the, importantly, the not-for-profit company. Uh, limited by guarantee, and it has charitable status, and we're going for DGR status as I speak. 50% of the profits from the polling company will flow back after in, after tax will flow back to the not-for-profit arm for investment in social benefit projects. Already we've trained uh, its role is in energy education and we've trained some uh, a good group of volunteers at the moment and they're going to into the into the community to assist people to think about how they reduce their energy use and they're available to speak at events and go to clubs and schools and so on. Additionally, uh, we are developing social benefit projects and a good example of that at the moment is that we're working with a social housing provider and the Office of Environment and Heritage to put solar on the roofs of community housing. And we hope to get our first project up fairly quickly, fairly soon. The finance arm um, will, is there to come and it will facilitate community generation projects in the future. So how do we see ourselves benefiting the community, fulfilling our objectives? Well, I think you need to see ANOVA essentially as a regional development exercise. Uh, at present, uh, some $80 million is leaving the region, um, flowing out through energy bills, just in, to the major retailers, just in operating expenses and profits alone. We'll be working very hard to keep as much of that as possible, keep increasing amounts circulating in the region to help with further renewable energy projects and to help develop a lower carbon emissions community. So far, in terms of creating employment, we have some 20 employees and contractors, a mixture of full and part-time, and obviously all of our service providers, uh, local web designers, writers, auditors, <coughs> providers, so we have a bi-local, wherever possible, um, policy. Because we're a majority community owned, then obviously the majority of returns will flow back into the community, and um, half the returns, as I've said, will go to social benefit projects to make sure that we can bring the whole community with us as we transition to renewable energy. And by being, just being there, we're already attracting people from other regions to come and learn and work with us. And we're learning and working with them, learning from them as well. How do we go about reducing the carbon emissions? Well, our retail licence covers the whole of the national electricity market. So it's, we're not restricted to our region at all. So it means that, um, with the exception, I should say, of Victoria, which of course has its own uh, regulatory system. We do intend to get a licence for Victoria, but first of all, we'll finish moving through the rest of uh, the region that we can well move through the rest of New South Wales for starters. Um, 
So, we focus strongly on promoting renewable energy products and we're moving to support community generation projects and I'll talk a little bit more about some of those projects in a moment. By offering a very good feeding tariff, we're encouraging more take-up of uh, renewable technologies in buildings and, of course, the easiest and best way to reduce carbon emissions is to simply use less energy in the first place. So a not-for-profit's educational role is critical in developing that energy in their community. All right, okay. So, to encourage the development of community-scale renewable, we're willing to pay a premium on wholesale market prices for renewable energy. And we encourage our customers to purchase this through using our gross margin to subsidise the cost. Clearly, there aren't enough projects in any one region at present, but we will progressively grow that. So to give you three examples, some practical examples that are underway, one of the Nova's key offerings is our Renewable Development Initiative, that's as a product. So when you sign over to Innova, you can agree to contribute 30% of your bill to a fund to assist local, develop local community generation. And I'm pleased to say that approximately 30% of our, our customers to date are going down that path. We've issued, put out a call for expressions of interest for projects, and we've already, as a result of that, entered into MAUs for three projects. So one with SolarShare in Canberra, one with the Bar and Shark Council and the Community Agriculture and Genome and one with City uh, for uh, Community Energy for Bowl. And we're in discussions with two more groups in Queensland, two more in New South Wales and one in Victoria. So as we see it, the task ahead is to get five to 8,000 customers over the next two years and provide a good service. Uh, Break-even is around 4,000, and uh, depending on the type and use of customers. Our aim is very much to demonstrate the success of the community model in lowering acquisition costs and churn, uh, which we think it will do, and that we can make strides in facilitating generation by providing a premium on available wholesale prices and that we can grow the partnerships and obtain the funds for a wider range of social benefit projects. And then, of course, we want to replicate. Our licence, as I said, allows us to sell across the NEM. Our back office systems are scalable and we can shape those relationships and partnerships and we're doing so to meet the needs of other regional communities. So our vision is one of communities powering themselves across Australia and we invite you to join us. You're listening to Radio 3CR and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Tonight we're at the All Energy Conference. Casey Clifford is a dynamo. She's the project coordinator and community engagement manager of the Talgum Energy Project. I would say she's the personal trainer for that small town of Talgum in New South Wales. And she tells us how she got people engaged with this project of taking Talgum off the grid and becoming totally self-sufficient with renewable energy. Talgum is in northern New South Wales. We're about an hour from Pullingata Airport um, with approximately 120 households. Uh, we've got five larger energy uses and the village has a lovely aspect. We have a hugely motivated community. They are exceptionally uh, supportive of renewable energy projects. Um, they were one of the first towns 
in um, the Northern Rivers to have, you can see there on the sign, gas feel free. They supported the Lothergate um, and Alison mentioned the Bentley effect. That was one of the first towns communities to get behind it and have the whole community on board. The other thing is we're also at the end of the grid, um, which means that if we do decide at any point to cut the wire, um, we're not going to uh, disrupt either town or any side. So um, all these things are, are working in our favour, obviously. Um, okay, so the project started to get some momentum in 2014. Um, in 2015, like it was mentioned in the clip, we got $15,000 from the government um, and we used that to fund a feasibility study. The result of that was um, the provision of a roadmap, um, which has been extremely um, useful in our progress now moving forward. Um, and basically, there is um, a lot about empowering and engaging the community throughout this whole roadmap, and it is a um, is an important factor in every phase of this because we we know that if we don't have the trust um, of the community moving forward, that this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, and so we need to make sure that, that is a, a hugely um, critical thing that we address at every stage, just to make sure that we can keep momentum going. So just so you know, these are the numbers. There's 2.7 megawatts of solar and 2.7 megawatt powers of battery storage would get taken off the grid. That's an approximation, but um, there's some numbers for us to look at. The cost at the present time to do that would be between 6.5 and 7 million, um, with battery storage coming down in price. We look at that. We can see that drop to 4.7 million by approximately 2020. Um, and there is a visual representation um, against the backdrop of the town of approximately how much solar power is required. So it's actually really achievable. What I want to give you is a little bit of um, a background on me. I don't have any experience in the renewable energy industry at all. Before 2014 in September, I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and that's really important because I feel like a lot of people are concerned about where this is going, where this industry is going and the effect on the future. Um, you may have, may have children, you may be concerned about their future. Um, I have basically a, a motivation to do something different. I grew up in that area and I believe that we need to make a change and things need to start moving along. Um, and basically I'm good at communicating. I have a background that has nothing to do with the technical side of things. I have just basically um, used my communication skills to basically bring the community together and that has pushed us along immensely. It has been the key driver in this project. The big thing that has um, pushed this project along is focusing on the social solution. So the technology exists. It's available, it's developing. There are a lot of, there is, you know, there's a lot of people focused on that sort of side of things. Where projects get caught up is in the social solution. Usually the community has different interests that are not all aligned. And you're never gonna get everyone in that community to care about renewable energy or clean energy or all of that sort of stuff for, the, for that reason. They're not, they're not gonna come on board for that reason. So what we have done differently is focusing on um, empowering the community and engaging them on different levels and diversifying our benefits to the community. So, um, you know, we've spoken to the hall, which is a, it's a big um, a big thing in Tuggan. It's not much there, but the hall sort of brings people together um, about doing their um, upgrades and providing them with solar panels. 
um, for free as part of uh, as part of the project. Um, and these sort of things are what grabs the community. They may not care about renewable energy at all, but if they can see that the hall that they use every week for karate or for plays or for Christmas concerts now has free energy, um, all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay. I can see how I can help out here. I, I can see how I can get some benefit out of it, even if it's not, you know, the green energy, the you know, the going green and the going um, having that uh, freedom. It doesn't matter. They're on board. So we believe that this is the crit critical enabler of the project's success. So how do we get this moving elsewhere? My advice is to get started. The first thing that I did in in September 2014 when Andrew came to me was. I called every community group I could find in the region, regardless of the fact of whether they were interested in renewable energy or not. I called every single group. Within four hours' notice, I presented to the Residents Association with no facts, just a concept. And I went there and I said, look, uh, this is what we want to do. I'm open to suggestions, I'm open to questions, I, have, I don't have all the answers. And I'm not here to provide you with a solution. What I'm here to do is to gather you and bring you together around the concept, something we can work on together. Um, and I was honest about um, where we were in the project and what we wanted to do and where we came from. Um, and I basically brought them together and they started providing you with solutions. It was actually really exciting. So in a community of 120 households, we had um, between 40 and 50 people at the first community meeting with four hours notice. So it was pretty exciting. I talked to everyone. At all of these conferences, I write down exactly who it is that I could be um, interested in meeting, and I talk to everyone. I get the word out. Um, and like it says on the next point, I don't talk about the project as if, you know, maybe. It's when. And, you know, along, you know when can we do this? I sit down and I, I speak to people as if it's already happening. Because it needs to be. There's no time, there's no time to sort of go, well, if that happens. We've got to start moving forward really quickly. I also give people the truth. I remember sitting at this conference last year and listening to um, someone present about a story. I don't give the story. There is no story. It's too late for stories. <laughs> I give you the truth. If I don't know the truth, I'm going to give you that too. Because I don't believe that we have time to uh, sugarcoat things. It is, it is what it is, and we've got to move forward with that. So I give people the truth in small doses that they can, that they can handle. Not necessarily all at once, but that is my, that is my role in this project, is developing a um, small truth that I can gather from the technical people that give it to me and giving it and regurgitating it to the community in a way that they can understand bite-sized truths. I've been told on several occasions that if there was no one driving this project along, regardless of whether I have technical experience or not, it would have disappeared a long time ago. You are hugely value, valuable just by having the motivation to continue. Um, and like I mentioned before, you're not going to motivate everyone for the right reasons. So you've got, to, you've got to be okay with that at the beginning and go, right, well, how can we diversify the benefits so that everyone does come along? Because the end result will be worth it. And everyone, regardless of whether they're on board for the right reasons or not, um, you're doing the right thing and no one is going to be worse off. So just in case you wanted some more info, we've got the Facebook page, we've got, um, which is on YouTube, we've got a feasibility study which could be adapted um, for anyone, I, I welcome you to read it all and, and to download it. We're all about spreading the information. 
um, sorry, it wasn't the interchange either, I think it was last month. Um, or email me or just Google us. Um, we're happy to spread any information we have. We're, we're happy to provide it to anyone because we believe that this needs to start happening everywhere, not just in Taliban. There are a lot of remote places in Australia where the cost of electricity is horrific. So the Pingala Group decided to take community-owned solar farms to them. Here are Tom Knuckles and April Crawford-Smith from a group called Pingala. What did we do with all of this and, and what did we do when we did the Young Henry's project? Well, we actually did a, uh, the way I like to describe it is we did an equity crowdfunding event. We did that without an actual web platform, but instead with a real crowd. So the way that worked is we invited members of the local community to turn up to invest in the project. 150 people turned up. We knew that there were going to be way more people wanting to invest than we had um, investments on offer, so we made it a bit like a chook raffle. <coughs> people put their tickets into a drawer and then they were drawn out um, over a period of nine minutes. And in that space of nine minutes, we, we sold out all our shares um, and we had 54 investors in this new cooperative. That allowed us to, to pay for the solar panels that we put on the roof and we now lease them to young Henry's. So that's it in a nutshell, that's what we've done. We're, we've effectively found a way to do a large number of investors, crowdfund equity, which everyone knows in Australia the conventional wisdom you can't do, but we can do it because we're a cooperative. And fundamentally what we've done is we've put the community right at the front and the heart of what it is that we do. It's, it's, it's at the very core of our value value proposition. Um, and it allows us to go to other, other sites like Young Henry's and step away from this really commoditised discussion about whether or not solar is going to save them money and how much it's going to cost, and to talk about it in this new dimension, which is whether or not they want solar, or if they want solar which is being invested in by dozens or hundreds of their local um, constituents, local stakeholders, who will become stakeholders for the future success of, the, of, of that business and what it is that that business does. does. Um, and we think we're on to a good thing and we're going to do more and more of those. So back to April, talk about remote communities. So in late 2014, the Valley Centre, who I work for, um, was invited to work with these Aboriginal communities in northwest New South Wales um, on sustainability projects more generally, um, looking at self-sufficiency, how they can build businesses, um, environmental projects. Really, it's, it, it was bringing the community um, that was struggling from drought to a more sustainable level, economically, socially, um, sustainably. Um, and when we got talking to all the community members, the fundamental challenge that a lot of them were facing, among others, was this question of energy affordability. Um, their household energy bills um, often peaked at two or three thousand dollars per quarter. That was a really normal bill. And this is, um, you know, often two to four to six, to maximum eight people living in the house. So really, really regular-sized houses with these massive bills. And, and, and the challenge was that they just could not pay them. And people were being threatened with cut-off and there was no one to help. And um, accessibility of technology in terms of applying for a government grant or um, rebate or support was just really un um, unachievable. And so we said, okay, that's, let's, let's have a look at this. Um, I, I work with Pingala, who, who is a community group that does solar, so let's try and marry these two, this challenge and this opportunity, and see what we can come up with. Um, and so we went home, um, better people, having, having seen and, and learnt what we, what we could while we listened and listened and listened to all these different things while we are there. Um, and amazingly enough, the OEH Growing Community Energy Ground Round was open at, 
the week that we got back. So it was um, an incredibly crazy time of gathering together all our resources and our partners and putting in an application. But we got the top bill funded um, grant. Um, and in the next year, we, we, we started with um, that, that a small but big. It, it's, it was 70k, which gave us enough money to, to work for a year um, on all these different things to travel to engage the stakeholders. Um, and the main thing was looking at energy efficiency in the household in terms of infrastructure and education, um, looking at what was the most appropriate technology um, for these on-grid but very remote communities. Um, obviously renewable energy and particularly solar was what the communities wanted to focus on. Um, and the last thing was to build a model that would allow for community investment um, in these projects. So we did all that in a year and it was totally mad. And for me it was, um, again, a standout that this was a, a community energy project. So government or the state land council could have just rolled it, gone in and rolled out solar and there would have been an amazing you know, technology transfer. But would it have been the community's choice? Would it have been their desire? Would it have been what they thought of? Would it have been designed for them? Um, would it have been the right solution? So for us in this project, it was, it was community designed for, achieved by, benefited from. It was all about the community, and that, for me, is why this project stands out, but also why the sector stands out. It's about the community and designing solutions that are right for community. Um, we want to continue to do um, uh, projects with disadvantaged communities um, further afield, like we did with these three remote communities. We are really keen to explore ways that we can deliver additional value by forging partners with other organisations, partnerships with other organisations that are doing um, important work, like energy retailers, like bulk buy organisations, um, where that's going to deliver a value not only to the communities in which we operate, but also help us achieve our goals and, and build our own resilience. We are really keen to develop a community, what we're calling a, coining a community franchise model. So we have this body of knowledge of how to do this, we have the investment vehicle. How can we now take that to other interested communities elsewhere in Sydney and potentially further afield to allow them to run their projects using our knowledge base um, and our cooperative platform? One quick one, uh, going off Andrew Daisy's talk this morning about um, bringing the whole community with us and the need to look after people who don't have... Um, who are in energy poverty. Um, we've found so far that of our 900 or so customers, 200 of them to date were entitled to concessions and hadn't been told that by their existing retailers. Yep. Right? So we have been able to move them onto that and bring that money back into the community. So I <laughs> thought that was an interesting point about the difference between true community retailing and retailing. <laughs> You're listening to 3CR Radio. This is the Beyond Zero Emission Show. We're at the All Energy Conference in Melbourne. Welcome back to the All Energy Conference in Melbourne. Mark Williamson from the Clean Energy Regulator had sharp words for the industry. He said he'd name and shame retailers who do not comply with the move to demand more renewable energy. This is needed to stimulate more building of renewable energy sources. So here we have Mark Williamson. Before I jump into the detail, can I ask for a show of hands as to who would find it helpful if I give a simple explanation on how the large-scale renewable energy target works? 
a lot of hands, so thank you for your honesty. Uh, um, I didn't want to make any assumptions. Most people heard about the target, but uh, it still seems to be enshrouded in a bit of mystery about how it works. It's a very simple supply and demand scheme. So the target, when we talk about that 33,000 gigawatt hour target, uh, it's actually not a build target, it's a demand side target. Uh, so the liable parties, there's about 119, typically mainly electricity retailers, and as the target uh, progressively increases, and, and I'll show you a bit about that in the presentation, uh, what happens is those liable parties have an increasing obligation to annually surrender certificates to us. And they do that based on what's called the renewable power percentage that the Minister sets in regulations every year on our recommendation. And they simply multiply their liable acquisitions by that percentage. And that percentage will increase as we move through to 2020. So it's a demand side target. On the supply side is accredited renewable power stations. And they can create a large scale generation certificate for every megawatt hour of renewable power they, they generate from a renewable energy power station. So essentially it's the demand obligations on the, the electricity retailers that provides the pull and the incentive to build the gym. The, the, the target of 33,000 gigawatt hours is set in stone. Our messaging to the liable parties for the retailers is clear as a regulator. We expect you to comply. We've always had a greater than 99% compliance in all of our schemes. We expect them to comply. However, if some decide the $65, if they're not paying much taxes, the cheapest way out compared to paying the, the spot price, we do have the ability to name and shame, and we will name and shame in a way that makes sure the shareholders and the customers hear exactly about it. And we use social media. We're modernising as a regulator. We're trying to lead in social media. We'll use social media if we need to. So to the liable parties, do not try it. Your obligation is to find certificates. That brings on the new bill. It's absolutely non-compliance with the scheme to take the penalty option, um, and it's not on as far as we're concerned. So the demand is there, it's rock solid. The projects are there. We say in our annual statement, and it's in the Ernst & Young uh, report as well, there's around about nine to 10,000 megawatt of projects with DA with development approval, and there are more getting development approval every day. So there are plenty of projects there. The money is there. We know that there's plenty of money in the economy but a lot of risk aversion to invest. And this is not just a problem for renewables, but uh, there's a risk aversion. So there's money looking for good investment returns. So our view is it's about innovation bringing the three of those things together, uh, and we hope the Ernst & Young report will help do that. In the session on wind energy, I heard the president of the World Wind Energy Association speak about a global view and the potential for Australian wind energy projects. He's a very eminent man and I really appreciated his talk so please listen carefully. This is the Honourable Peter Ray AO. I said earlier today to somebody in discussion welcome to one of the two worlds that exists in Australia. One of the worlds is the world in which renewable energy is recognised that it's an inexorable process uh, that uh, the world is converting to renewables and the other world in Canada and the Australian newspaper seems to be that there's no such thing as reliable renewable energy. 
So let's have a look at the whole of the subject and uh, see where we get to. The past year has been a remarkable year uh, in that not only did we have Paris, COP21 in Paris and the results of that, which I think everybody's familiar with, but it was a great uh, boost for renewable energy because for one of the first times the conference concentrated on renewables rather than on climate change itself. Then there was the, I think, quite dramatic recent announcement by China and the United States of their intention to confirm the agreements reached in Paris. And they are the biggest two, uh, the big two, and to have them on side cuts one of the arguments which used to be made on behalf of Australians saying that we should not proceed rapidly. And they said that, that we'll wait till the rest of the world catches up to where we are. Well, I must say that the rest of the world is overtaken Australia, and uh, uh, it will be interesting to see what result comes from Canada when they realise that. But that, as I said, is another world. We have the Pope and climate change and renewable energy with his announcement. We've got the announcement by Europe of a 40% target by 2030. They are all things which, when you add them together, I think uh, make the situation one in which uh, it's very hard to argue that the process is not, the rollover to renewables is not something which is inexorable. And uh, I think that the, the situation in Australia is one which uh, needs to be brought back to talking the truth and talking the facts in relation to renewable energy rather than the myths trying to support the preservation of the coal industry, which incidentally will last for a long time, whatever happens. We won't be seeing the end of the coal industry somewhere overnight. Um, it will be phased out over a long period of time. And if we get to 50% renewables by some of the times of the targets, uh, it will still be 50% coming from fossil fuels. So the sort of mad preservation of coal and coal industry or attempt to preserve is something which is just quite unreal for Australia. So looking at what's happened in the past, we've been able to see that by joining renewables together, you can ensure that you don't have the problems which were experienced in South Australia, where um, unfortunately there wasn't the system available to be able to compensate when some extraordinary circumstances took place. But let's hope that the lesson has been learned and that future planning takes into account what's needed. In Australia, it's obvious that grid and network design uh, and operation, market rules and so on, all need revision and modernising for renewables. State-by-state -state targets and rules, only some of them national, are, are confusing. In the early 1900s, Australia set out to have a national electricity market, but that still has not been achieved. And uh, I think it's to be encouraged that a uh, Prime Minister under pressure, shall I put it that way, has nevertheless endeavoured to take long overdue action to attempt draw the system together and start getting a coherent approach to renewables in Australia. And uh, I welcome that and hope that the states will join with that spirit and have a national approach and much more coordination 
Some lessons for Australian policymakers are recognise the need for synchronised Australian targets and policies, uh, the approvals process and making nationwide the grid and network systems are important to be pursued, undertaking a review of market operations to cater for renewables is needed, caution and method of conducting options is, uh, I suggest, important. Planning for the introduction of concentrating solar thermal power uh, needs to be starting to be undertaken to a greater level than it is. Pump storage hydro and other network stabilisers need to be pursued. The development of community power and other aspects of distributed generation is an important growth aspect. Preparation for electric motor vehicles is an extremely important one. And it, I can remember going back to conferences in Australia five and ten and fifteen years ago, and we were saying then you need to start planning for uh, electric motor vehicles, and it still doesn't seem to be happening. Finally, my favourite, which is recognising the true benefits of Australian to Australian manufacturing and technological development for the country, to the uh, employment situation, to the recognition which Australia could have of uh, its. Uh, attempts when I think of it around the world, the number of people who started in Australia and finished somewhere else uh, as multi-millionaires uh, having taken their technology to where somebody appreciated it rather than where they started it. Finally, the answer to the world's sustainability challenge is flowing in the streams, it's shining from the sky, it's growing on the land, it's steaming from the earth, it's hidden in the waves and it's blowing in the wind. And that, I think, is the way that we should look at the future of Australia. In a panel on bringing stronger investment into the clean energy sector, I was impressed with Alexandra Campbell. She's the principal at Avoca Capital Advisors and she got a round of applause when she said we need far more government investment. Think of the Snowy Hydro scheme. Think of a concentrated solar thermal plant at Port Augusta. I liked her comments too, as the urgency of climate change just makes me wish for a Roosevelt-style parliament where all that expertise in this room, all this industry presence and all this money... And people who are used to handling, you know, $11 billion projects could be coordinated into the big transition to zero carbon energy systems that we just can't leave to the messy market. After Alexandra's clap, you will see I was emboldened to ask a question. And we finish with Lane Crockett, the head of the Renewable Infrastructure Impact Investment Group. I hope you've enjoyed this, listeners. It's uh, hard to go to a conference and just distill it into one hour, but it should give you a touch of some of the comments that are being made and how hard this industry is trying to move together in a coordinated way. Personally, what I'd like to see happen is a lot more direct funding from uh, government for renewable uh, technology. Um, clean energy and arena uh, are fantastic initiatives, but as pointed out, clean energy has a commercial uh, requirement and it is debt funding at the end of the day. Um, Australia has a long history of public finance with key infrastructure assets. Uh, a lot of these assets have been successfully very successfully sold at the moment that capital uh, reinvested back into new infrastructure. Um, renewables have been seen as differently uh, within Australia and I find that disappointing and I would like to see, similarly to the way that Victoria's funding to key infrastructure initiatives at the moment, that some of that money goes directly back into uh, funding renewable assets, possibly in partnership with um, private funding.
I represent a radio program on climate action and I noticed Alexandra got a big clap for uh, asking for more government help and I worry, I came to this conference last year and Mark Butler spoke about cutting back on arena and he wished there was more power coming from the lobbying from the industry and I wonder if this, if this industry together, wind and solar and all the other renewable energy sources as a group educate our government representatives because recently in the South Australian blackout the ignorant comments from Barnaby Joyce and Nick Xenophon just begged you know, a complete co um, contradiction, aggressive contradiction in the media and the media people who interviewed them needed to be a bit educated too because they gave them airplay and they didn't contradict them. So I think there's a big educational opportunity for this, uh, this industry. Do you agree with me? Yeah, what a challenge. Um, <laughs> so, well, that, that is one of the things that is complex. It is a complex industry that we work in. Um, and not so much a, like a solar farm, it's not really that complex, but the regulation, the laws of regulation and, and, and you know, technical commercial regulation, uh, the way you connect to the, the way that the groups manage. Um, and so it does lead to a situation where it's often either mis misreported or misrepresented. Um, so, yeah, look, I, that's a really tough, tough one. I agree, we just keep at it. Um, I think in some ways, you know, I don't want to get into South Australia, but one of the good things about it is that it has actually spurred on a conversation that took a, like a day or two to, to start to come up. And I noticed even between, you know, the 7.30pm, 7.30, yeah, 7.30, and then the uh, late line, there was quite a marked difference in the, the amount of knowledge and the, the depth of questions that were being asked. Um, so, yeah, if, if, if it keeps going on as a conversation, it will actually get clearer. So if there's one good thing to come out of South Australia, it is that I think that it has helped people start to learn that there's a whole lot of different layers and that it's quite a complex situation and we don't actually know for quite a while exactly what happened in those, you know, those last minutes before the system collapsed. Thanks to our guests tonight, they were Craig Horn of the Energy Storage Association of USA, Daniel Laws from Power Diverter, Alison Crook AO from Inova, Casey Clifford from the Talgum Energy Project, April Crawford Smith and Tom Knockholds from Pingala. Then there was Mark Williamson from the Energy Regulator, the Honourable Peter Ray AO, President of the World Wind Association. Alexandra Campbell from Evoca and Lane Crockett from the Renewable Investment Group. Viv says a special thanks to Dale from 3CR who showed her how to edit all those voices into one whole. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to the team tonight, Teddy, Jody, Roger and Viv. My name is Andy. Stay tuned to 3CR for Save Albert Park.